if you ever, um, we, we know, like, there's so many things in our past that, like, um, we, we don't know why we remember, but we remember, and then the things you think, I should remember this, because this is important, like, you can't remember, but you remember the stupid things in life. Um, don't ask me why I remember this, but, but many, many years ago, maybe it's for this moment right here, but many, many years ago, I remember watching an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. I never watched the show. I, I just remember this one episode for whatever reason. It's probably back in the, the, the late 90s. And one of the things they were testing out was to see how gullible people were. All right, so, so they, set, they set up this experiment in this shopping mall, and uh, they put up a table, and they advertised at this table uh, a new diet fad. And this new diet fad consisted only of eating hot dogs, right? It's the hot dog diet. So basically, they wanted to see if people would not only sign up, uh, but would actually pay to join this new diet, which promised that, hey, you're going to lose weight, and all you got to do is eat hot dogs. And it seems crazy, right? Surely no one would take that seriously, but they had lines of people waiting to sign up for this, this new revolutionary movement of the new hot dog diet. And, and so the question was, okay, why? Like, why, why would people sign up for something like this? And it was because it was, to them, well, that seems easy. That seems easy and, and doesn't seem like I have to change a lot in my life, right? Like, so, I, I mean, you think about the, like, I eat hot dogs, but I'm not losing weight, but yet somehow I can eat hot dogs and I'll lose weight. Sign me up, right? Nothing's changing in my life. And, and so even just that little experiment that they did, just for kind of laughs a little bit, but as you think through it, it brought to my memory this week, uh, it revealed something about the human heart. Like, we want the quickest and the easiest route to fast results. It's, it's why even today, the newest diet fads have to promise really three things. You're going to lose more weight in less time with doing next to nothing, right? If they want to compete in that, whatever that market is, that's what they have to do. You're going to lose more in less time, and you really don't have to do anything different, Right? And so it reveals something about us as human beings. Like, okay, we, we don't want to exercise, so we don't want to do that hard work. We don't want to cut out sugar and the fatty foods. That takes too much time, takes too much effort. That makes my life a little bit more miserable. So just create a pill that, that I can swallow and it whatever dissolves the fat. So I can still put the fat in me, but then the pill, will just, like, that's what we want to do. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of pyramid schemes, right? They, they promise a quick return on investments, right? Substantial income with little to no effort. Get rich quick, right? That's the allure of playing the lottery. That's the allure of gambling. We don't have to wait. We don't have to do much. And, and we can come away with, with a lot of money, right? So, so, but the reality is, and, and we, we know this, we just don't like it, but we know, like, okay, losing weight, getting healthy, it's going to take time. <laughs> it's going to take time. And it's going to take discipline. Uh, building a safety net for your family so you can not only retire one day, but maybe even leave something for your children and maybe even your grandchildren. That doesn't come overnight. It takes years and years of consistently and sacrificially saving and watching it grow slowly over time. But we don't like to wait we don't like to wait, right? We, we don't want to, to pause our life. Like, give me it now if we're going to be honest with ourselves. I'm sure we've maybe heard the old adage, right? Good things come to those who wait. Now, I don't believe that's a, a universal truth in that 
at all times and in every situation that only good things are going to come if you wait for them. But, but that saying, as I thought about it, is birthed out of this general observation that good things, that fruitful things do take time. They're not quick. The scriptures, specifically even the Psalms, are often calling on us to wait, to wait on the Lord. David twice in this psalm alone says to his soul to wait in silence. Now, why is that? Well, he, he explained, because from God comes my salvation. What I'm wanting, salvation and deliverance from my enemies, help, it comes from you. And, and so I wait for you to act. But we don't like that. We just don't like that. The temptation we're going we're gonna to face, that the temptation we're going to feel is, I don't want to wait for that deliverance, right? That, how long is this going to take? I don't want to wait for that help. I, I want what I want now. So, so the temptation then becomes, I'm going to look elsewhere, right? What, what else can I look to, turn to for the quicker solution? It, it, which then the world so quickly will jump in and say, right here, right? Look, look over here. Here's your hope. Here's your deliverance. Here's your solution. Here's your Here's your quick return. And yet what we will quickly discover is that every promise that the, the, that the world makes is empty. It's going to be shallow. It's going to be soul-crushing. The world's never going to fully deliver on anything it ever promises us. It's a scheme. It's a scheme that ultimately robs you, robs us of the joy that's found in waiting. The joy that's found in trusting waiting in silence in the Lord as, as he works in and through you to, to build you up, to chisel things away, to be that help, to be that rock, to be that refuge, to be that salvation that we're so desperately hungry for. And so we need to learn how to wait. We need to learn how to trust. And so the overarching theme of, of this psalm alone, if, if I was going to put a, an overarching theme over it, it's that it's calling us to put no trust, put no trust in the, in the fleeting treasures of this world, but to wait and to put your trust in the everlasting riches of God. David does this. David does this by comparing and contrasting two things, the trustworthiness of God against the deceitfulness or the the, the unreliability of humanity. So we're going to see those two things contrasted against one another in the psalm this morning. So notice first the trustworthiness of God. We see it in the first couple verses, verses 1 and 2, and we see it as well uh, repeated in verses 5 through 7. So look again at your text. Psalm 62, 1 and 2 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now jump down to verses 5 through 7. Once again, David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is, is God. Now, I've already alluded to this, but what's the first thing you notice with those few verses? The first thing you should take notice of is just what's most obvious. It's that there's, there's repetition. There's rep repetitive phrases that David's using in those, in those verses. See, scholars of ancient Greek and, and Hebrew texts are going to remind us that the ancient languages, they, they didn't use punctuation. They didn't have paragraph breaks like what we have today in our modern language, which means that, that these authors were relying on other literary methods to show emphasis. 
And so we're going to ask ourselves a question, and what is David, through these means, seeking to emphasize in those opening words? Well, he's, he's obviously emphasizing God alone, on God alone, his soul, my soul waits and trusts and rests in you. And so he says it again, on God alone, my salvation, my glory, my fortress, my refuge is in you alone. So he's emphasizing that. Now, again, he's seen God and is seeing God in the past as that salvation, as his rock, as his fortress and his hope and his glory and his refuge. And so because of all of this and all that David had witnessed and experienced in his life, He now here, in the face again of of trial and suffering and difficulty and attack, he's saying, in in light of all that, because of who God is and who I know God to be, no matter what he faced, he says, I won't be shaken. I'm not shaken by that. I'm not rattled by that. It's just another thing that's happened, and yet I've seen God deliver over and over and over again. So he's reminding himself of who God is. See, though his enemies were seeking to attack him and to destroy him and to curse him, because he, he was held so secure in the fortress of God, it's like nothing could shake him. Nothing could shake him. Nothing rattled him. In James Montgomery Boyce's commentary, he says this, that David, he's in danger, but in spite of the danger, his trust in God is so strong that the psalm is wonderfully serene and confident. In fact, I think even just personally and just through studying through a few different commentaries and how they structure this, even just looking through it, even the way the psalm is, is structured and written is revealing that confidence that David had in his God to surround his enemies and defeat them. Here's, here's why we see that. What, what, do, what do we see again in the first couple of verses? We see David expressing confidence in God alone, right? God is his salvation, the rock, fortress, We see that same thing repeated again in verses 5 through 7. Confidence in God alone. It's his glory. It's his hope, his refuge. Well, now what's taking place in verses 3 and 4? What's taking place between those two sections? It's David's enemy. It's a highlight on David's enemies trying to destroy him. And so even the way in which David is writing the psalm, do you see this? Like David literally has his enemies surrounded by who God is. His enemies are surrounded by his God who fights for him. Did we not see that two, two weeks ago when Dan preached Psalm 60, a, a God who, who fights for his people? Psalm 60 verse 12 ends with saying, With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So here we are now two psalms later, and David is literally illustrating that truth in the words and structure of how he's even writing this psalm. He's having his enemies surrounded by the God who fights for him. But also notice here David's, David's posture before the Lord. Notice David's posture before God. He's silent. He uses that word twice, doesn't he? He's silent. Right? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Verse 5, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. As his enemies are plotting their attacks against him. As David faces even just the simple brutality of life as he's facing just the difficulty of life, the sufferings and the trials of life. His posture before God is silence. He's not not plotting his counterattacks. He's not complaining about how unfair life is to him. 
He's not using his position as king with power and all his authority that he has to undo what his enemies are bringing against him. He's not then going and crying and seeking affirmation from others so he can just feel better about himself. No, he's, he's silent, meaning he's so confident in the trustworthiness of God that he's, he's just patiently waiting on God to fight for him, to deliver him however, however best his God sees fit. In fact, even the English translation that we have of verses 1 and 5, even though he gives a full picture of David's posture here. See, in verse 1, the Hebrew word for silence that he uses is, is the Hebrew word do miyah, do miyah, which means to rest, to be quiet. It's what we think of when we think of silence. But in verse 5, he uses a different Hebrew word. He uses the word domam, which means he's waiting, but he's waiting in anticipation. So he's resting, he's not speaking, but as he is not speaking and waiting, he's waiting in anticipation for his God to act. See, David is so confident in God that as attacks and as insults and as character defamation, defamation is being hurled his way, he's silently just resting in God, knowing my God fights for me. My God fights for me, my confidence is in him. See, Scripture, scripture constantly calls on us to wait on the Lord. Scripture over and over again calls on us to be silent. Right? To be silent. Why? Why do we struggle so much with silence? Why do we struggle so I want I want, to, I want us to illustrate this. I want us to think through this. Why do we struggle with silence? sensed a slight tension <laughs> and the relief comes over do you feel that the tension that fe- we were talking about this in, in staff this this week we kind of talk about this the sermon and i said i, I think i might i'm gonna do like kind of an extended silence and i think trevor said you do 30 seconds it's gonna feel like 10 minutes <laughs> it felt that right I, I think that was 30 seconds that slight uncomfortableness that the nervous laughter, that relief that comes over. You start to hear maybe people, they're shifting your seats. If your kids are in here, you're like, please don't say anything during this time, right? How many of you during those few moments were even just saying, like, I don't like this. I don't like, how, how long is he going? I know he's proven something. Well, how long, though? Like, please say something. How many of you were tense and felt like I can't move because everyone's going to hear even just me shifting? See, why do we struggle with silence? I think we struggle with this fallen human beings a couple of ways, a couple of ways, probably, probably many more. Here's the only two my feeble mind could think of. But one is, feels to us as something, like something's lacking. Something, something's missing. 
right? Like, so for that 30 seconds, it's like, you're supposed to be talking now, right? You're supposed to be talking. We listen, you talk. This isn't part of what I signed up for this morning, right? So something's being withheld. Something is not in our control. To feel a little out of control, even just in that moment, like, what's going on? This isn't normal. Like, like we feel that urge to fill that void with something, some action on our part, right? Okay, so no one's talking, right? You ever, ever had uh, lunch or dinner with, with people and like all of a sudden the table just goes quiet and you're like, uh, and, and you got to jump, like someone feels like they've got to jump in. Okay, no one's talking. I will fill that, that silence. For me, sometimes silence just feels it's like nothing's happening. So I'm going to make something happen, right? I'm, I'm going to take charge here. So I think it's one reason maybe we, we struggle with silence. I think a second reason, though, is I think we struggle with it because whether we realize it or not, silence does confront us with our own neediness. When there are no distractions, right, when, when there's nothing, there's no white noise around us to kind of make us kind of move all over the place and we're just left with our own thoughts, we're confronted with our neediness. There was a, a, a TV show Amy and I watched a, a while back. The, the show was called Alone. I think I've referenced this before. Um, but the premise of the show was, was pretty simple, right? There were maybe uh, 10 to 12 contestants, and they were all dropped off at these remote locations in, in this wilderness by themselves. So each person was dropped off at a different location by themselves with nothing but just a few survival uh, supplies that they were able to bring. But the goal of the entire show was to see who can last the longest all by themselves without knowing how long they're actually going to be there. And so you could, you could drop out at any time. So there's, I think the first season, one, one person dropped out after 12 hours. Like, I can't do this, right? They heard bears as they were sleeping at night, and they're like, I'm getting off this island, right? Like, so the last 12, 12 hours, but you could, you could call in, and someone would then come and get you, but none of the other contestants knew when someone dropped out, right? So, so they'd be there for weeks and weeks and weeks without seeing another human being and also having no idea how many people are still actually in the competition, and so I think the guy who won the, the first season, I think he was there on that island or, or in the wilderness by himself for 56 days. And so he said to himself, as, as at the end of that show, he says to, to future season contestants, he's like, do not go on this show if you don't like yourself. And he said, because all you have are your thoughts. That's all you have. There is no, he's like, there is nothing to distract me. Right? I'll stay busy trying to do things, but like at night, it's just quiet, and it's just me. So every day and every night, he was by himself, and he's like, that aloneness was starting to get to me, just being with myself. See, we don't like silence because we feel the need to either take charge ourselves, or we don't like silence because, because then we have to come face to face with our own mortality and our own brokenness. And so it's easier than for us to just distract ourselves from those things, right? It's easier for us then to get to work, to turn up the noise so that we're distracted and we don't have to deal with our mess. But God is constantly in his word saying, be silent, right? Psalm 46, 10, be still and know I'm God, right? Be still, you're not God. Be still and know I'm God. Be silent so that we learn in the silence, to rest, to rest in his provision, in his action, in his salvation. Be silent. Wait on the Lord so that we become more dependent upon him and not in ourselves. We want to learn to lean on him because he's trustworthy and that there's nothing else actually out there in all of creation that compares to him. In fact, that's what David secondly shows us in this psalm as he compares the, who we are against the trustworthiness of God. 
And so the second thing we see in the psalm compared and contrasted against the trustworthiness of God is, is the deceitfulness, or you could write the unreliability of humanity. See, look at, verse, look at verse 4, as David highlights the sinful nature of humanity. So whereas we see in verses 1 and 2 and 5, five through 7 that God alone, he uses this word alone, and God only is his rock and salvation and fortress. In contrast, David's enemies, he uses a similar word. They only plan to thrust him down, to take pleasure in falsehood, to bless with their mouths but curse with their hearts. So what do we see in those few verses about just the state of the human heart apart from the grace of God? We, we see human beings will, by nature, tear others down in order to get ahead. That's the self-centeredness of humanity. Human beings will take pleasure in lying if it benefits them. Human beings we see are hypocritical. The Apostle Paul speaks, speaks to these things with even more clarity in the book of Romans, chapter 3, when he says that none is righteous, no, not one. <laughs> no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the natural state, the default state of the human heart, you and me, apart from God's intervening grace. The CBS Evening News ends their, their newscast every, uh, every Friday with like a, about a two-minute segment um, from correspondent, one of their correspondents, Steve uh, Hartman. Uh, the segment that they end every Friday with is a segment called On the Road. And so Steve Hartman, he travels uh, across the country and he looks for these stories of kindness and generosity that, that just kind of go beyond the norm, and then they feature that. And, and so it's a, it's a feel-good segment. It's what it is. It's, it's done so that viewers are left kind of feeling somewhat inspired at the end of the broadcast and maybe at the, even at the end of a week, right? Let me at least send you with a, with a feel-good story of someone's act of, of kindness toward others. It's, it's a good idea. I'm, I'm, I'm glad they, they do it. However, uh, it's a two-minute segment. Two-minute segment after 30 minutes of news that airs every night where we live in the 24-7 even news cycle, where every story is highlighting what? The absolute brokenness of humanity. The absolute brokenness and mess of the world in which we live. So after story after story after story of wars and poverty and famine and natural disasters and kidnappings and murders and political scandals, here's two minutes. Here's two minutes of, of one random thing we happened to find that someone did that was nice. Right? Like, is that not a commentary on the state of humanity? That, that's, that's humanity right there. And yet, what's our temptation? To put our trust in humanity rather than in God. To trust in ourselves, to trust in creation rather than the creator. We're tempted so easily to find our hope in this world, which is a, a mess because of sin. See, what's David warn us here, even in verse 9, as he goes through? He, goes, he says, those of low estate, he's like, remember this, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. See, the, the Hebrew word here for low estate is adam. The, the Hebrew word for, for high estate is the Hebrew word ish. Now, both mean and both are referring to humanity. All right, adam, 
Adam, right? It's referring to humanity. And, and so what, what David here is saying is high and low, whoever you are and however you fit in between those things, all of humanity is but a breath. It's a delusion. It's a lie. In fact, in Jim Hamilton's commentary, he basically says this. He says, what David is ultimately saying is that people are, listen to this, a meaningless delusion, a meaningless delusion that human beings are nothing more than a breath, a vapor, a lie that will be weighed in God's scales. We're reminded of this as well in the New Testament book of James about the brevity of, of life, right? James 4.14, what is your life? You, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We, we know this is true. We believe that that it's true, not just because Scripture affirms it, although that is sufficient, that's sufficient for belief and practice, but we also believe what we've just heard because our life experience affirms this. Like, have you ever met or interacted with another human being who's self-centered, who lies and, and, and speaks hypocritically in order to get ahead in life? Have you ever experienced the unreliability of humanity? Have you not witnessed the brevity of this life yourself? Can, can you say with complete honesty that you're in complete control of all events, complete control of your future so that everything that you have planned and have planned out accordingly to your life's plans and goals, that, that it will come to fruition. There's nothing foreseeable in all of life that could possibly happen which would interfere or derail the whole life plan I've set out. Unless we be tempted even to drift into self-righteousness. Are, are you not yourself unreliable? Are you not yourself tempted towards self-centeredness and towards lying and towards hypocrisy? And so what Scripture warn us of in, in light of that truth, that reality of who we are, hard truths, but we have to sit back and, and when we're honest, like, yeah, that's true. And, and so Scripture warns us in light of this truth in verse 10, when David says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. U using Hamilton's thoughts once more, he says this, that this is the typical way human beings, and he's speaking of verse 10, this is the typical way human beings seek power and influence over others. Through extortion, through robbery, through oppression, through brutality, right? Through, through, through tearing down in order to get ahead. He said, this is the typical way human beings in, in our culture, in our world today, Apart from God's grace, seek that power and influence over others. So we'll, we'll extort and we're going to brutalize and we'll oppress. We'll take advantage of others in order to make sure we're first. We're going to set our hearts on, on, on acquiring more and more stuff, right? Believing another lie that I, I, I'll be happy if I just have more of what I already have, right? So our hearts are so often set on things, material things, on riches, for the past year and a half or so, we, we as a church journeyed through the Gospel of Mark. And if you were here with us through that, that study, uh, do you recall what many of the interactions and conversations were between Jesus and his disciples? All right, they, they primarily, especially toward the end of the book, they primarily began to revolve around this, this countercultural, this counter kingdom that Jesus was ushering and that Jesus was, was building. Right? So on several occasions, the, the disciples are arguing with one another uh, about one main thing, right? Who's going to be the greatest? 
out of this group here, who's going to rise to the top? Who's going to be, who's going to be the best, right? Who's first? Who gets that seat of honor? Who's going to be known? Who's going to have power over others? And what's Jesus continually teach them? Well, Mark 9, 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. That, that's a countercultural ideal, a countercultural uh, a, a truth that Jesus is saying. If you want to be first, what you desire, here's how you get there. You serve others. You, you put others ahead of yourself. You die to yourself. You're a servant of all. He has to remind them of the very next thing, uh, of that same thing in the very next chapter because James and John now, who, who didn't quite catch what Jesus was saying, they're wanting power and authority. And so they, they work this way to speak to Jesus almost privately without the others saying, hey, can we have the seats of honor in your kingdom, right? We want to be right and left. We want to be first. So Jesus, again, calls them together because the other disciples are ticked when they find out. Like, we, and they're not ticked because didn't you just listen to what Jesus just taught us? They're ticked because you beat us to asking that of Jesus as well. Right, so, they're met. so Jesus calls him together and tells him again this revolutionary countercultural teaching in Mark 10. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But he says, but it's not going to be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's saying, Do you see how the world operates, guys? Those in power, they, 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 uh, they, they operate with this oppressive mentality and they, they lord over those that they're, they're in charge of and have authority. Like that's, that's the worldly way of seeking authority and power and being first, right? I'm going to rise to the top so I can crush those beneath me. He's like, that is not my kingdom. My kingdom is not going to be attained that way. It's going to be built that way. It's going to be built through suffering through serving, through giving. Just a few chapters later, when Jesus is arrested, Peter takes out a sword, right? And he physically attacks those that are coming to arrest him. Now, there's a lot going on in, in that text, but Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. He heals the man that, that Peter wounded. And then through the act, he, he's reminding his disciples, and, and he's reminding us today, his kingdom, that he has come to build and to bring, is ushering in, is not going to be established like all the rest of the kingdoms of the world. It's not going to come through violence. I'm not, I'm not getting on the throne through violence and oppression. I'm, I'm going to be exalted through suffering and through giving. I, I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Jesus the King, about this moment. He says, Jesus is saying that my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm, I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. My revolution comes without the sword. And Keller closes by saying, it is the first true revolution. Our hope is not in humanity. Hope is not in riches. They will fail you. They will not satisfy you. Instead, remember, as the psalm leads us to in verses 11 and 12, two great things about God. What's David say at the end here? He says, all, all power belongs to God. So one great thing he's, he's learned about God, all power belongs to God. He's also learned the love of God is, is steadfast. 
He's like, don't put your hope in these things. Remember these things about who our God is. All power belongs to him, and his love is never-ending. It is steadfast. See, though there's infinitely more to know of God, just these two truths alone give us enough to worship him for all of eternity. In the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, right? If you've ever seen it, right? The great and powerful wizard which, which struck fear, right, into the hearts and minds of those around him was revealed at the end of that movie as, as nothing more than this old man who was hiding behind a curtain, right? There was nothing when he was revealed that was striking about him which, which should have caused all others to be bowing down before him in fear. See, this psalm, I believe, has torn open the curtain on the true state of humanity, and that which we often bow down to, that which we often give our lives to, is, is being seen as unreliable, deceitful, not something that's, that's trustworthy. And yet the psalm also has been revealing to us in the, the true beauty, something beautiful, the glory and the goodness and the greatness and the faithfulness and the steadfast love and the trustworthiness of God. And just as David waited in silence for his God to respond, so can we wait in silence because someone greater has gone before us, someone greater than us has gone before us who has faced our enemies without opening his mouth. Jesus stood before Pilate, before his accusers, and he didn't open his mouth. Jesus, as he stood before the accusations, the false accusations being hurled at him, trusted in his Father even to the point of death. And because Jesus has gone before us, because, because Jesus has faced the enemy against us of sin and of death and faced it head on, because Jesus was forsaken on that cross, we then through repentance and through faith in Christ alone can walk in victory and confidently wait on God alone. We can rest because of Christ in eager and with eager anticipation, anticipation that even when faced with the brutality and the difficulty of life, that because Jesus went to the cross and because Jesus has been raised from the dead, that there is nothing in this world that Christ does not stand in complete victory and complete dominion and complete power over. That's why we then, who rest in him, can wait in silence. We don't need to act because Christ has acted for us. We don't need to speak. Christ has spoken for us when he said from the cross, it is finished. There is nothing left to be done. So in the hardships and the sufferings of life, as we yearn for hope and meaning and peace and salvation, we don't look inwardly. We don't look to the world to, to meet those things. We look to him who says it's finished, it's done. We wait on him. As David exhorts us in verse 8, we must hear these words in light of the trustworthiness of God. This is the, 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 the true application this morning from this text. Verse 8, David pleads with the people. You can hear it. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I wish we could spend the next 30 minutes just walking through this verse alone, but, but hear what David says in light of who God is. He says, trust in him. Trust in him, meaning be confident in the Lord. He says, at all times, here's what that means, at all times, <laughs> trust in him, at all times, pour out your heart. That means to, to heap up, right? It's what he's saying is let, it, let everything flow from who you are on your heart before him. Like we hold nothing back. 
One study Bible I read this week says it this way, that one's deepest and most private thoughts and feelings and insecurities are safe with God. That's what it means to pour out your heart to him. Because we remember that in him, God is our refuge. That's what David reminds us of. So how do we grow in this? How do we grow in our continual trusting then and pouring out of our hearts before him at all times? I'll give you two quick things from the text and then I'm I'm done. Uh, Two things. No truth, speak truth. No truth, speak truth. When you read the scriptures, there's, there's many things to always be on the lookout for that show importance, that emphasize important things. One is repetition. One is repetition. The, the other, though, is variation in the repetition. We, we've seen both of those things today. We saw repetition in verses 1 and 2 and 5 through 7, didn't we, right? So that's showing us something important. David's emphasizing something very significant to, to take note of. But if you caught it, when you read through verses 5, 6, 7, you also saw some slight variation in the repetition. And that's done intentionally to draw attention to something else as well. So verse 1 again, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So in verse 1, David is speaking to what he knows is true. So he knows I, I must wait in silence, right? My soul waits in silence. I must wait in silence. He knows that from God comes his salvation. He knows these things. So, so, so because he knows these things, and he also understands, though, I, I need to believe these things as well. That's not sufficient to just know it. I must believe it. And so that's what we see in verse 5. There's similarity yet variation that takes place in verse 5. Catch it. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. Now, it's subtle, but significant. See, David is moving from knowledge of truth in verse 1 to now speaking that truth to his heart in verse 5. He's saying here to his soul, I know these things now, soul. Oh, my soul, wait in this confident expectation. He's saying to his soul, believe this truth. He's saying to his heart, my hope is from him. He's saying, I know these things are true. Now, my heart, my soul, believe them. Dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. Hope in these things. No truth. Speak truth. Put no trust in the fleeting treasures of this world, but wait on God and put your trust in the everlasting riches of who he is. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Let's pray.